get excited about it. Come on. Man, I love it. You guys are a ready crowd. Wasn't it good? Isn't it good just to be in the presence of God? Just to be able to worship, to draw close. You know, it's times like this that I feel like, you know, God's word where he says that he inhabits the praises of his people. It kind of makes sense. I talked to a buddy of mine and I wasn't planning on sharing this, but he said, you know what? He said some of the times of greatest encounter with God that I've ever experienced. He said they had nothing to do with the message that I heard. Had nothing to do with the preaching. It was just a moment where I was able to come before the Lord and worship him. And a sense that he was there with me. That's a powerful thing. Man, it is good. And so we gather as the church of Jesus Christ. We gather to put our focus, our eyes on Jesus. To celebrate his resurrection. To come and worship the God who has met us as sinners, right? And delivered us. Come on. It's to rally around the word of God and to hear it and to let it speak into our lives. And so we're going through this series in the book of Colossians, first things first. And today we're going to talk a little bit about family. And I don't know about you, and you've heard a lot about my family already, but you guys, do you ever think about what kind of sets up your family dynamic? Do you ever think about what has built your culture? I mean, go ahead and think about it. I don't just mean families in general. I mean your family specifically. Like, what are the things, if you were to talk to your kids, for those of you who have kids, and say, like, what is our family? What is our home like? Who are we as a people? What would they say? Would it revolve around the kitchen? Would it revolve around the living room and and watching TV or, or movies? Would it be, we like to laugh a lot. What would it be? I mean, think about it. Your family dynamic is unique. Would it be the kind of music that you listen to? Would it be, hey, we're a musical family. I've seen some families where every single member in in the whole family, they all played an instrument. Seven kids, and they all played an instrument. And I was like, what is going on? That's amazing. But they're just the musical family, right? And so I thought about it, and I kind of wondered, you know, what would my kids say? I have three kids, eight, 11, and five. And if I were to ask my kids, what kind of family are we? Who are we as a family? I think they would all kind of think about it for just a second and their eyes would light up and probably every last one of them would say this. They would say, we are a family who wrestles. (laughs) Y'all thought I was going to say something about Jesus and I sort of wish I would have, but you know, God's still working on me. Okay. But one thing we do regularly and well is wrestle. And I got thinking about like, why is this such an important thing to me? Why is this such a big deal? And I think in every family, I mean, think about your house when you grew up. I don't know what your interaction with your dad was like for me. Like one of my favorite memories growing up was my dad used to play with us and he'd wrestle around with us and we would jump on his back and he would pull us off and flip us over. And it was just this kind of cute, wonderful thing. And he probably stopped wrestling with me when I was like seven or eight, you know, probably something fairly young. You know, my oldest is 11 and we're still going strong. And so I think there was something right that I wanted to bring in here And whereas stuff with my dad was kind of playful, my kids have taken it to like this whole other level. I mean, it's like, it's like a Mad Max movie. I mean, like, like everything in the house is kind of like able to be utilized. And so my kids will start looking for things like if they can find a piece of rope or something like a jump rope, they will literally try and like tie me up. And then like they'll take blankets and literally one of them will put it over my head while the other one jumps knees first at my face. Like these guys are insane. And this is a very regular thing that we do. 
And it's so regular, in fact, that even my little girl, who's only five, she gets involved in this. And yesterday, just yesterday, last night, she comes up to me, and she's, you know, kind of having a rough day or whatever, and she's holding her blanket, and we're all kind of settled in for the night, and she's holding her blanket. She walks in where I'm there with the boys, and she says, Daddy, Daddy. And I say, oh, yeah, sweetheart. You know, she's got that pitiful kind of like, you know what it asks for when they come up to you? Daddy, it's just love me. That's what she's saying. Love me, Daddy. Daddy, yeah, sweetheart. She says, Daddy, I want to wrestle. Well, okay. And so we did, and we wrestled, and we, you know, they love it. And I got thinking, like, why is that a thing to me? Why is that so important? And, and you know, I, I think about it, and what I grew up with, and having that, that good memory of my dad, and I kind of, like, trying to recapture that magic, you know? And is part of it, like, what I experienced in my childhood? Do we bring that into parenting? I think we do. And as part of it kind of, you know, uh, this idea, like all of us, I think we're trying to grab onto the things that were good and make sure that our kids get to know that and kind of protect them from the things that are bad. You know, as part of it that I just, I want to connect with my kids and have those sweet moments. And right now, like they don't understand everything when I speak, but man, they get it when I body slam them, you know, they know, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's part of it. You know, is it just something that we do that the kids love and my wife, it terrorizes her every day. Maybe. I, I don't know what the draw is, but I, I think about it, and there's something there to what develops into our identity in our home. And so whether you have kids or not, all of us are building up this atmosphere, this environment, this culture within your home, and it's based at least to some degree on what you've experienced, right? And so you knew something in your family, you knew something in your home, and some of us are trying to recreate it. I want my kids to know what I knew, and some of you, you're living in spite of it. Some of you, you grew up in the home where you had pristine white carpet, and none of us will ever understand why, but you had pristine white carpet, and you were told, like, you had to leave your shoes at the door, and if you had that mom, you had to put bags on your feet, right, as you walked into the living room, or you just weren't allowed, like, I'm sorry, that's not really the room for company, you know, like, there was that kind of household, and you were like, I don't want to have that kind of house, and so you don't, all your furniture is a little broken, and, uh, you know, you can walk in with your shoes and people just feel loved and it's not the environment where everything is perfect. You're like, this house is lived in and love is present. Be at ease. And that was your thing. And some of you, you're, you're, you're fighting against what you knew and some of you, you're trying to recreate it. But for all of us, I think we're kind of this mixed bag of things that changes the way we engage with what is family. And so one of the things that I want to do here is just kind of revisit what is my motivation for family? What is moving me? What is compelling my heart as I try and create culture? Because this is what's at the heart of this passage in Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me. Colossians chapter 3, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, just incredible. We as a church should revisit this often. It starts out in um, just kind of giving a recap of the book. This, this letter is written to the church in Colossae, written by Paul to a church that he hadn't been to, but he'd heard of it. And he knew that they were a, a small church that was trying to figure out how to navigate all of this stuff and trying to love each other well and follow Jesus well. And so he writes the letter to encourage them. And for the first two chapters, he's just telling them, man, you got to keep living for Jesus. Just keep living for Jesus. And then in chapter three, it really comes to its kind of pivotal point in verses one through four, right? It's this focus of keep your mind and your heart on things above. 
where Christ is seated in the heavenly realm. So have this eternal perspective. Understand you've got to live out life here on earth, but keep your eyes pointed at Jesus. And then that becomes the foundational aspect with what follows after verses 5 through 11, where he begins to tell us you need to put some things to death. You used to live in this old way, this old culture, this old life. You used to do things like this. Put those things to death. Get rid of them. Get them out of your life. That's not who you are anymore. If you have found the new life in Christ, abandon the old. Get rid of it. Put it to death. You used to have certain desires, certain lusts, certain cravings, certain ways of conducting uh, your life. Don't do that anymore. And then in verses 12 through 17, he begins to tell them, and this is what I want you to put on. This is what I want you to be like. And he begins to express to them, hey, you're going to be like Jesus. And this is the character and the quality. And he, he lists compassion and kindness, humility and love kind of wraps all these things together in forgiveness. And you are going to be like Christ in the world. And in fact, in, in verse 17, he kind of ends that segment by saying, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he's saying, whatever you do, like all of this thing has been live for Jesus, live for Jesus. Understand your, your new identity has kind of taken place of your old identity. The old is put away. If you used to sin, don't sin any longer. If you used to steal, stop it. If you used to be an alcoholic, give up the alcohol. If you used to be a, a, a drug dealer or a drug addict, get that stuff out of your life. You don't need it anymore. You're not living for that. Now you're living in this new identity for Jesus. And everything we do is supposed to revolve around him. And so he uses this very open-ended segment, this, this part of speech, and he says, whatever you do. And so I, I want you to help me out here because I don't want us to get confused. I think sometimes we bring Christianity into certain parts of our life and we say we need to know how would Jesus deal with this and how would Jesus deal with that. And he's very, he's very focused on trying to help us understand it's, it's everything. He says, whatever you do. Somebody say, whatever you do. That's everything. Everything. Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so he's really catapulting this thought of like you've gotten rid of the old, you've put on the new, you're living for Jesus, everything's about him, right? Everything revolves around him, and now I want you to bring that home. I want you to bring it into your family. And so the title of today's sermon is this, What's My Motivation? Change the way you do family. And the first part is he's going to address the marriage because what happens is, and this is kind of the central element of the home, is it begins with the individual whose heart is turned to Christ and then it, it moves outward into this, this pillar, this foundational aspect of the family, which is the marriage. And so my first point is this, put Christ first in marriage. Be the first to sacrifice for the sake of love and unity. In other words, if you're wondering who should go first, the husband or the wife, let it be a race. Race to the altar, race to Jesus, race to who will live pursuing love and unity. And he begins to speak, and I want you to hear this well. So if you haven't turned there already, again, Colossians 3, verse 18, go ahead. There's a, a Bible in the pew in front of you. Pull it up on your phone. I'm fine with that. Just maybe save the angry birds for a few minutes. And he says this. He addresses wives. Wives. So if you're married in this place or you're a young woman, uh, it's okay, you can even be, you know, kind of middle-aged woman uh, who's looking to be married, right? And you're saying, I want to be married. This is kind of giving that view of, okay, this is what it looks like to understand your identity played out in this one particular role of being a wife. And so he's saying, wives, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Now, listen, I understand we just did this first Peter series like three months ago or something like that. And you guys might start to think, man, we talk a lot about submission and everything in this church. Uh, The reality is, is that we're preaching through the Bible. And so as stuff comes up, we're going to talk about it. That's just the reality. And so there's really three passages in the New Testament that I can think of where this is talked about very, very clearly in terms of roles of husbands and wives. Uh, One, when we talked about it in the first Peter series, first Peter chapter three talks about this. Wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence for God. Okay. Ephesians chapter five. It talks about this again. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then here in Colossians chapter 3, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. So we've talked about this before, that this idea of submission is really a military term that understands you're under authority and that the purpose of submission is actually alignment. The purpose of submission, whenever there's more than one person involved, you could say, hey, you go your way, I'll go mine. That doesn't bring unity. The goal of submission, the purpose of it, is to say, let's come together, let's stick together, and let's move in the same direction. And so in this case, submission is the godly response of the woman who is ruled by Christ, acting out in her family to provide unity by submitting in order to please Jesus. This is not a demotion. This is not a lesser role. We see in Scripture Christ subordinating himself and submitting to the Father. This does not make him less. He is equally God, the purpose of this is unity, and this is the calling of the wife. John Piper actually had a really good segment on this, so in in kind of understanding how this works itself out, I I want you guys to think about this, because in our culture, submission has kind of like, it doesn't have a very pleasant aroma to it, if you know what I'm saying. It's not thought of as like, man, my favorite thing about being a godly wife is I get this wonderful calling on my life to submit, and I love it. Um, It's not often the thing that we think first best. John Piper has a way, though, I I really appreciate how he preached this and how he kind of explained it. First, he defines it. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's a disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. So those words, disposition and inclination, they speak of something happening in the heart that pours out in action. And this is what's going on here, is that in this letter, Paul speaking of the motive. Why does the wife submit to your husbands? Because it's, it's fitting in the Lord. So I'm doing this to please Jesus. I'm doing this to honor God. And John Piper says to the women in, in, in his congregation as he's speaking, I want to give you words to kind of understand what this might feel like. And if you don't feel like this represents you, I'd love to have a long conversation with you after it. You can send me emails or, or talk to me after service. But, but I thought, man, this is good. This kind of gets at the heart of, of what submission kind of speaks out of the mouth and heart of the wife. And so this is coming from the wife to the husband. Submission says, I delight for you, husband, to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in this relationship when you are passive and I have to do what has to be done to make the family work. Let me say this again from the heart of the woman. I delight for you, husband, to take the initiative in our family I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish the same way in this relationship when you are passive 
and I have to do what has to be done to make the family work. You see, the opposite of this mentality is to say, hey, here's this passive husband who is not exercising leadership, who sees what needs to be done in the home and does nothing about it. If you've ever been in that situation where you've had a husband who sat idly by, and I've been in this situation probably once uh, ever, um, but don't talk to Allison about it. Um, you know, but, but you've been in that situation where you come home and for whatever reason you're doing something, you know, godly reading the Bible or, or, or watching TV or whatever it may be that you're doing, and the kids start just losing their minds, and you're like, yeah, I should probably do something, and then you turn the volume up a little louder or something like that. It's not a, it's not a good look on you, right? And then your wife is dealing with this stuff, and there's this feeling in her heart like, you should care about our family. You should care about our home. There should be something. In fact, I flourish as a wife when I see my husband saying, the family matters so much that I'm going to take initiative to try and help our family be better. The wife flourishes when that happens. And so the submissive heart is one that's saying, I want this to come out of my husband. I want this godly spiritual leadership that you would care about the things of the home, that you would care about investment in the kids, and that you would express this in a way that actually makes life better for me, easier for me, and makes this family an enriched family, right? And this is true whether you have kids or not. There's still an aspect within marriage that, again, the husband should be taking initiative. He should not be sitting back passively, He should be engaging. And so this heart to submit is a desire to see the husband operating in a way that brings health to the family and the wife coming alongside him in unity and alignment. It's not saying I'm waiting for you to move. It's not saying I can't initiate, but it's saying that my life is better when I'm not the only one who cares about this. Does that make sense? And so some of us, we question, well, how does submission work if the husband is asking us to do something ungodly? How does submission work if the husband is saying, hey, I want you to do X, Y, Z, and it's sin? What do I do then? Should I, for the sake of the gospel, submit to my husband and sin? And so I really appreciate, again, John Piper giving language to this. And I know I'm not a woman and I'm not a wife, so it doesn't bear the same kind of weight on me. But I I felt there was something good. And I've been under authority before, and there have been times in my life when authority seemed either foolish or sinful And I said to myself, I don't want to have to follow that. And I almost looked for the reason. What's the loophole? What's my way out? Right? And he's saying that should not be in the heart of one who understands how to submit to godly authority. And so this should be in the heart. So if you're going to submit in response to sin, it looks like this. To speak to the spouse, to speak to your husband, and to say, it grieves me. It grieves me. When you venture into sinful acts... And want to take me with you. You know that. You know who I am. You know I'm a Christian. It grieves me when you ask me to follow you into this. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin. As much as I want to follow you in our marriage, Christ is my king. And so this picture, what it does is it says, hey, I want to submit. I want to follow you. I want to honor you. But this is sin. You know I can't do that. Jesus is my king. 
So it keeps this perspective up. This is empowering to women. This is something that is valuable in saying submission, as we're invited into it biblically, is not a demotion. It is not saying you don't hold the same value as your husband. Rather, it is saying as you follow King Jesus, one expression of that obedience to God that is going to bring unity and health and healing in the home is for you to submit. And so when we do this, it is the active work of the woman in taking her power and her ability and saying, I choose to do this. Husbands, I shouldn't have to say this, but I find I often do. This is not your divine commandment by God to make your wife submit. Okay, if you write like for Valentine's Day and you were like, I love you. And then you put Colossians 318 on the bottom like you are not a good husband. Um, so if any of you ladies got that, I apologize on behalf of men everywhere and specifically your husband who I'm, let's be honest, he didn't get you a Valentine, so it doesn't matter. Um, but the thought is you got one. No, that's good. That's good. Let's move on before you talk to my wife again. Um, so the whole idea here is that this is something that happens when we do this right, that makes the family life flourish, Right. Wife submitting to your husband as it is fitting to the Lord is her saying, I choose to submit of my will in order to bring unity in the home that my kids can grow up in a place where they see mom and dad moving in the same direction. It doesn't mean I can't question. It doesn't mean I can't ask. It doesn't mean I can't suggest or even in cases lead. The family needs that. But at the core of it, it says unity is more important than me getting my way. Does that make sense? And so this principle actually allows for unity and it flourishes well when the husband is loving. So in verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So this is an important thing. Again, it becomes incredibly easier to love uh, or rather to submit when the husband is loving. And obviously it's easier to love when there's a unity of mind and it's not something that's always being opposed And so really, this is a recipe for a good and healthy marriage. Now, the trick, again, is who goes first. If your wife is the very last thing from being submissive, which is she is constantly undermining and disrupting the family unity by saying, whatever stupid idea you have, I'm going to have the contrast much better idea. And I want everyone to know. Like, that becomes hard. That's just challenging. If you can't bring up an idea or an initiative that isn't having the knees cut off from underneath it, that's just a challenging thing. And he's saying, guess what? Love anyway. Love anyway, husbands. And it's really challenging to love in that situation. And it's really hard to submit when you feel like my husband is not loving or kind. I read the list of all the things that Christians are supposed to be and put on, and I don't see that in him. Am I really supposed to come along and try to align myself with that? And the answer is yes, for the sake of Jesus, because at the end of the day, this is way less about dating advice or marriage advice and way more about how do I, in my position of marriage, align my heart with Christ. That's what's at stake here. That's at the core. So do you husbands love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. If you've been harsh, take this as a direct admonishment. Stop it. If you've been harsh, quit it. Move away from that. This is not God's call or will for your life. You may think, oh, you don't know her personality or her behavior. She needs me to be a little harsh sometimes. I guarantee that is not true. This is not the husband that models Christ. In fact, the 
the picture that God is trying to get you to present is of Christ loving the church. So think, what would Christ do and then be that way? And if your first gut response was to fashion a whip and knock over her like dresser, don't do it. That's the wrong application. So we look at this stuff, and I think a lot of guys, we get a little bit confused. If we're honest, if we're honest within the church, probably um, there is a bit of anger that we wrestle with. And we've got to be honest about kind of these, these blow-ups that we can have at times. But I think sometimes there's also this other end of the spectrum that gets into it. And it's this kind of passive, take a step back and don't create any trouble kind of mentality. And I think it's fostered by some sayings that you've probably heard of and know, right? Like, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Ain't nobody happy, right? And we're familiar with this stuff. And we go, oh, yeah, well, that's sort of like Proverbs 21, what is it, 9, where it says, uh, better to sleep on the corner of a roof, right, than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. In other words, like, hey, man, make peace or it's going to go bad for you, right? And so we kind of grab onto this stuff and it becomes our mantra, like, love like this, just make peace at any cost. And I got to ask you, men, what's really motivating your heart? What's really motivating your heart in your marriage? Because it will come out and it will have effects that you did not anticipate or plan on if what your greatest desire is, is avoiding conflict. If you were like, you know what I'm trying to do? If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Let's just keep her happy, man. Who cares? Like your kids are like, but she's wrong. And you're like, shut up, man. You can't say that. Just, it'll be fine. Just let her be happy. It'll all be, it'll be better for all of us, right? If like your thing is avoiding conflict and you're like, this will bring peace in our marriage and our home. It's going to keep you away from leading. It's going to keep you away from speaking into the family culture and creating needed change. Now, I'm not saying do that without grace, but I am saying that avoiding conflict is not the same as love. Secondarily, I think there's also an issue here. That sometimes as husbands, we love with an agenda. We love trying to get something back in return. Are you trying to get something from your wife? Are you trying to say like, hey, I'm going to treat you well and I'll be kind and loving and sweet. And what I expect from you is a very nice and pleasant demeanor. Like when you talk to me, maybe throw less things. Um, you know, when we, when I get home, you know, it'd be great if we could eat dinner together and I'd like the pleasure of your company and you could smile at me. And w- right when I get home, I'd like it if you could kiss me too. And not like, not like a little kiss on the cheek. I mean, I want that good kiss right on the lips, the kind we see in the movies where your heel kind of pops, you know, like I want that. That's what I'm looking for. And so you're like, I'm going to do all these great things for my wife. I'm going to treat her like this and I'm going to love her so that I can get something in return. And what happens is is that you become motivated or not motivated on the basis of how well she rewards your behavior. Okay? This is not what God has called you to in godly marriage. God has not called you into this thing that's like, try and love for a little while, and if it gets you good results, keep going. It's saying no. Motivated by love of Jesus, here's how I want you to operate in the role of husband. Love your wife. And so the motivation, the thing that's supposed to be on our heart is to thoughtfully put her first as an example to the family. In other words, that the kids would see it, that the kids would realize how you're treating her, that the church would see it, and that the world around you would see it, and they would understand how Christ loves the church. You see, the purpose of Christian marriage is that it would be a picture into the world of who Jesus is. And so they would watch and they would see something from the husbands and they would go, man, look at the way he loves her. 
puts her first and selflessly lays down his life for her. And the kids would go, oh, yeah, I understand what Jesus is like because I've seen my dad with my mom. Oh, yeah, I understand what Jesus is like because I've seen so-and-so's marriage and it makes me think I want that kind of relationship. Not just with a member of the opposite sex. Man, I just want that with God. You begin to see this kind of loving thoughtfulness and you see, oh man, that's the, that's the narrative of the gospel that even when the person is kind of a mess, you come alongside them and you pick them up and you, you wash them and you cleanse them and you love them and you care for them. And this is the narrative of love that husbands are called into. It is not meant to be dependent upon her response. And so if you say, but my wife doesn't love me back, I don't care. She's your wife. If you're to follow Jesus, love her anyway. If you're like, but man, she has such a cruel mouth on her. I can't be in her presence that she doesn't call me names that make me want to faint. Like, I don't care, man. Figure it out and go and love her anyway. The truth is, is that when we begin to live into this stuff, it creates change within the family. As we begin to live into this stuff, it begins to reshape what is normal. It begins to reshape how you begin to understand things. There's even a joke that went that there was a, a woman who hated her husband, and she wanted to kill him, actually. And she was thinking about poisoning her husband and killing him. And she decided that that was pretty crazy, pretty out there thinking. So she was going to go see a psychiatrist first. And she was like, I've been having these uncontrollable urges to murder my husband. And I think it'd probably be a good idea if I left him uh, before I actually kill him. And the psychiatrist said, hey, you know what? I, I actually, I don't think that's a good idea. And she said, why not? He said, well, what's your relationship like? She says, well, it's been bad for years. He doesn't treat me well. I don't treat him well. We barely make eye contact anymore. We have poor conversations. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you leave, it's probably going to feel like a relief. She's like, oh, I didn't really think about that. He says, no, no, no. What you need to do, if you really want to stick it to him, I want you to be thoughtful. What's his favorite meal? She tells him. He says, cook that tonight. He says, I want you to be just so kind and loving and gracious to him. Just, just begin to love him incredibly. Be thoughtful, engage, be sweet to him for the next month and then leave him. It will destroy him. And she's like, I love it. This is the perfect plan. This is exactly what I'm going to do. And so she goes home committed to loving her husband who has been horrible. He's been horrible. And so she loves him incredibly for a month. She loves him and she comes back in in a month and he says, so are you ready? Are you ready to divorce him, to leave him? She says, why would I want to divorce him? He has been the most sweet, wonderful, incredible husband. He has never, things have never been this good. Why would I leave now? And I think there's a reality to this that sometimes it's hard to be the first one to break through. It's hard to be the first one that says, you're terrible, but I'm going to love you for Jesus' sake. Not because you deserve it, not because I do, but because this is how a follower of Jesus lives, and it's in love. Right? Put Christ first in marriage. Be the first to sacrifice for the sake of love and unity. Be the first one to say, I love Jesus, so I'm going to live this out. Secondly, put Christ first in the home with the kids. Be willing to demonstrate honor and thoughtfulness rather than striving to get your own way. He tells them, children, obey your parents in everything. Somebody say everything. I mean, not everything, right? No, everything. Children's obeying everything. This is like really, really clear. And we get it mixed up because we're like, yeah, but my parents are, you know, they're not that with it. They don't really know what's going on. I don't really want to obey them all the time. Obey your parents in everything. Why? Here's the motive. For this 
pleases the Lord. Again, he's speaking to this inner motivation of the heart that if your desire is to please Jesus, then you say, how do I do this in this role or realm of my life? And then he speaks and says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And so I'd like to take this in pieces again. The first is children. We see this in Exodus 22, where we're told in the Ten Commandments, right? What is it? Honor your father and mother. That's right. And he tells them. And in Ephesians chapter 6, he actually quotes this, saying, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. In other words, you were given all these commandments, but this one comes with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Literally, so that you will be blessed. Now, this is an interesting thing. Because it's ratified completely in Genesis chapter 49, I think it is. I was reading through this the other day. And the chapter heading on chapter 49, I believe, is something like uh, Jacob blesses his sons. And it's funny because he gathers together his children to proclaim blessing over them. And Jacob is the dude who had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph, and he had a technicolor dream coat. And that's, it's that guy, right? It's that guy. And Jacob is is blessing his sons. This is what it says. And he gets to Reuben, his firstborn son, and he says, Reuben, because of the way you lived and treated and acted, your line's going to be cut off. You're done. I was like, well, that's not much of a blessing. He gets to the next two. And he says, hey, you two guys, you loved violence. In this world, you ran for life. And so your line's also going to be cut off. I'm like, you are bad at blessing people. And he gets down to Judah and he says, man, Judah, you will stand amongst your brothers and be praised. The throne and scepter will stay in your house until the one who is to come. The messianic promise of Jesus will come from your line. Judah, he's blessed. And then I begin to read through and I'm like, man, a lot of these guys are not blessed. And some of them were. And it was on the basis of the behavior in response to their parents. And so we're looking at it and you're like, oh, man, if you honor your mother and father, you will be blessed. And if you choose, I want to live in disobedience and wickedness. Guess what? You will not be enjoying long life on the earth. There's a reality to this. We see it played out in biblical proportions. We see the reality of this coming together. If you would desire to experience blessing from God, then you need to learn to align yourself under the authority of your parents. Now, that's true if you're a kid in this room, and it's true if you're an adult in this room, because if I'm honest, most of us, we don't disagree with our parents in the way that John Piper suggests that women should disagree with their husbands when they ask them to do ungodly things. I mean, I guarantee you, my kids are young, right? My kids are young, and so I know they're not going to act like adults. But never once have they even gotten remotely close to saying, Hey, Dad, I want to honor you and respect you and do exactly what you're telling me to do. It's just that I'm not entirely sure that this is the best course of action, and I'm afraid that I'm going to fall out of alignment with God. Can we please talk about this more so that I can come under your authority? This has never happened. I mean, if I tell my kids to do something and they're, like, not feeling it, I mean, they really go for it. They're going to be like, no, why not? I don't want to. I'm like, oh, we're a wrestling family. We know how to take care of this problem. No, but, but they wrestle. And there is nothing inside of them that says, hey, I want to honor your authority. It's no, you're stepping on my free will. And I don't like that. And as adults, if we're honest, most of the time when we get pushed up against by our parents and they start interfering in our life, right? 
usually we're just more polite about it. We're like, oh, thanks for telling me that. I'll, I'll think about it. Right? You didn't have any intention to think about it. So they bring it back up and they're like, no, I really think you ought to do this thing. And you're like, okay, thanks. And you just do whatever you want to do. And they push it a little bit further. No, seriously, you need to pay attention to this. You need to do it. And you're like, no, I I don't really think that's what I'm going to do. And they're like, no, you got to do this. Will you just stop trying to control my life? Right? It's never, gee, mom and dad, I really want to come underneath your authority. I understand that God has given you to me as a blessing. And I'm falling out of sync here. And I know it's going to inconvenience me. But since biblically I have no ground to stand on in rebelling against you, I would really love to do whatever you want. We just don't do that. I don't think we value the biblical authority that God has placed over us and say, you know what, this is good. And if I'm inconvenienced and if it's a little bit harder and if it's a little bit annoying and if it costs me something or I have to do things the wrong way, what's more important? The motivation of striving to honor my mother and father or the desire to be right. This comes in in both places. And this is why he speaks to the father and says, there are some of you dads in here. As you speak to your kids, you speak to them trying to flex. You're trying to show them who's the boss, right? And we, we kind of have like, and everybody knows it's Tony Danza. Um, but we, we try and have these things where we flex. And we're like, hey, this is my house. And as long as you're in my house, you'll obey my rules, right? Did you ever hear it? How many of you ever heard that growing up? Okay, it's not just a stereotype. It's like all of you. And then we begin to carry this stuff back. And it's not like, I don't know, I have two sons, and they both kind of push on it sometimes, but it's not like I feel threatened. It's not like I'm like, oh, you think you're big stuff. I better put him in his place real quick. You know, you don't feel that way, but I think there is a motivation here that's like, I want him to know I'm in charge, and if that's your greatest desire, pride begins to get in the way of restoration of relationship. And if there's one thing we don't see in Jesus, it's this sense of pride that he needs to be first and best, that he needs to be the one who's recognized by everyone. In fact, when Jesus came into the earth, he came low. He lived poor and he died a sinner's death. And we see this giving up of something and it was redemptive, right? And it's not like he didn't speak and he didn't teach and he didn't tell us what was right. He did do that, but he never got lost in his motivation, You see, the motivation of Christ in instructing us is not so that he could flex. It's so that he could lead us on a path that's good. And so we got to be careful, fathers, that we're intentional and thoughtful in this because there's a lot of ways we can get it wrong. I had several here, but I'm I'm running out of time, and I I just want to lead you through a healthy process. So we want to be careful that we don't ignore them. Don't be the kind of parents that get too busy that you just end up not spending time with your kids. I don't think anyone does it on purpose, but sometimes we wander into this. Take advantage of the time that you have. You'll never get it back. Secondly, don't overindulge them. There's going to be times when your kids act like terrorists and you're just going to think to yourself, man, it is easier to give them what they want than to stand firm because every parent knows who has ever punished a child. When you punish your child, you punish yourself. If you've ever grounded a kid, man, now you have to spend more time with them. That's just... That's just the thing. And so we want to be careful, like, what am I doing to really walk through this well with them? And, and here's where I want you to understand kind of my approach to this. And I'm not perfect, and, and I'm still learning and growing as a parent. And you're like, man, let's just wait and see till you get teenagers. My oldest is 11. I'm not there yet. I'm not claiming superiority in this. But I want you to know my heart, if I can share that with you. 
You see, with my kids, when they act out, I have this thing that I go through with them. And I'm very careful. We don't talk about good kids and bad kids in my household. What we talk about is honorable men for the boys, honorable woman for the young lady, and fools. And so when they do something that's unwise, when my kids do wrong, I will ask them. I've done this with my five-year-old daughter. And she'll do something crazy. She'll go up and she'll take a stick and just smash it into her brother out of nowhere, no context. And I'll go back to her and I'll say, are you an honorable woman or are you a fool? And my daughter will say, I'm an honorable woman. And I say, well, what you did, was it honorable or was it foolish? And she'll say foolish. And I'll say, well, when an honorable woman realizes she's done something foolish, what does she do? And she'll say at five years old, apologize and try to make it right. I go, okay, well, what do we need to do to make it right? And we wrestle through this thing. So it's this process of understanding what am I doing? How am I behaving? And what do I need to do about it? And so it's this process of correcting behavior by asking them to engage with what they're doing and to think through their identity. Like I'm an honorable woman who's not acting honorably. I'm an honorable man who's not doing the right thing. So how do I restore honor? How do I go through this process? And I'm very intentional about it. And when it comes to violence, I want to be very careful with my kids, not to, not to give them the wrong messages, but to help them understand their strength and their value. And so one of the things that I do when anyone uh, acts out in violence against the other, I have this moment. And I just want to lead you through the process as we kind of wrap this up in just a minute here. But I tell them, will you look at your hands? Would everybody just do that for a second? I say, look at your hands. I ask them to put their hands out right in front of them. And I say, do you see those hands? I said, those hands are strong hands. Those hands are strong hands, and you can use them to hurt people or to help people. What do you want to do? And they'll say, well, I want to help people. And I say, you can use those hands to tear up or to tear down or to build up. What do you want to do? He says, I want to build up. I say, okay, let's do it. There's this whole idea that what we need to be as parents is those people who help them understand the strength that they have the ability that they have to act and set them up with consequences. And this, to me, is one of the greatest, most exciting aspects of parenting, so much so that I remember a conversation I had with Levi when he was about seven or eight years old. He was getting punished for something. I went into his room. I got spanked growing up. You know, we, we do this kind of thing in our household periodically when it warrants it. And it's always a long conversation, and now you're about to get a spanking. And just as I'm about to spank my kid on his backside because he's done something bad and we've had our long talk, I can see him just kind of frustrated. And I said, Levi, do you think I enjoy this? And he says, no, Dad, I know you don't. I said, are you kidding me? I love every minute of it. <laughs> I said, I love it, buddy. He was like, what? I said, God has entrusted you into my hands to make you into a good and godly man. And right now your behavior is not exemplifying that of a godly man. And so it's my job to help correct it. I said, I live for this stuff, buddy. I live for it. I said, don't worry. You haven't let me down. I still love you. I said, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to do things that are wrong. And it is my job. And I love my job to help put you in your place. This is what I do. Get used to it. I'm going to be around for a while. I don't know what to say. I love it. This is who God has called us to be. But we got to be careful that we don't end up in this place that what I'm actually trying to do is demonstrate my authority over him. Some people do this insulting, intimidating, um, doing different things to try and curb their behavior. And we got to be careful because there is a way that we can actually discourage our children and embitter them. 
And he's saying, be careful, fathers. And listen, there are some of you mothers who might need to hear this as well. This is really kind of a parenting cue. But I don't think it's accidental that he doesn't say parents. He says fathers. Because I think fathers are more given to this. This is something that we fall into and we wrestle with. That at certain times, we see our kids and we want to put them in their place and we think it's right and just and good to do so. And I'm not saying that it isn't. What I'm saying is check your motive. Is your desire to be right? Is your desire to flex and put him in his place or is your desire to bring about transformation in his life because that will lead you to an alternative set of actions. And if you care more about being right than doing right, your kid will feel that and sense it. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Instead, speak life into them. Your words, they matter. Your kids will be defined by the things that you say in the same way that you were defined. I bet many of you can remember the times in your life when your father was proud of you or the times when he put you down. That stuff, it carries over with you and it changes the way that you engage with future generations. I think of my mother who was told by her father very rarely, if ever, that she was loved. She grew up in a household where being told, I love you, just wasn't a thing. And so what does she do? In the next generation, I remember just about every day of my life growing up as a little kid, my mom would say this and I'd roll my eyes. She'd come up to me and she'd say, hey, Andrew. I'd say, yeah, mom. She'd say, hey, Andrew, have I told you today that I love you? And I'm like, mom, like 13 times, stop. You need to stop. (laughs) I didn't get it. I didn't understand it as a kid. I didn't see it. But I find out her story and it's got all this context. And she's like, I didn't get this in my life. And I wanted to bring it to you. And I think about it as I'm telling my kids, like, I love you. I tell my kids a lot, I love you. And it's because my mom and dad, they spoke that into me, even though that wasn't necessarily the environment that they grew up in. And a big piece of this, though, is to ask the question, am I simply living as a reactionary individual or am I asking the question, God, where are you moving and working? How are you motivating my heart? Because there are some things that we will try to do differently that will actually be destructive. My parents grew up very, very poor, and so they worked hard to make sure that that wouldn't be my life. They did not have help for college. In fact, my dad was on his own at 16, really taking care of himself. By the time he was 12, he started his own business at 10, bought his own lawnmower at 12 so that he could mow other people's lawns, and if he had clothes, it's because he bought them at 12 years old. At 16, completely on his own. My mom grew up in a similar situation. Her dad worked three jobs just to put food on the table, and they never had much. And when she said, hey, do you think I could go to college? And he says, why even try? You'd never make it. That was the environment that they grew up in, and so they worked hard to make sure that would not be my experience. And as a result, I had all the support in the world. They told me all sorts of good things like, Andrew, we believe in you. Whatever you set your mind to, you can do it. And they made sure that I was always cared for financially, and I'm blessed by that. I am. I'm blessed by that. Let me tell you, my workaholic parents were rarely around when I was a kid. And what I experienced was a life without my parents very present. And I'm grateful now for the relationship that I have with them. I've never been closer to my parents than I am right now at this moment. And I love them and I'm so grateful for them. But I can't get back that time in my childhood. And I think about that with my kids because I wonder to myself, what are they experiencing of me? What do they get of my time, attention, affections? And guys, as parents who are taking care of our kids, this is so important. As people who intend to have kids later, this is so important. As grandparents who are thinking about how you govern your children who are raising kids of their own, this is something where we need to begin to recapture in our imagination the identity that God has given us as godly parents. Take advantage of this. Let your heart be questioned, how? How am I envisioning who I'm supposed to be 
as a parent because of Jesus. Third and finally, and, and this gets a little tricky, but uh, in the household spoken of in Colossae, there is this is interesting environment where slavery is kind of a normative thing. And it's not slavery the way that we understand it here today, um, though it does have certainly some negative aspects to it. About one in every three people in the Roman Empire at this time would have been in some form of indentured servitude a slave. Some of them are only there for a little while to pay off debts. Others of them would sell themselves to be bond servants, which is a slave for life because they have found a good master who would pay them and take care of them. In either aspect, it is not a racial kind of a thing nearly as much as it is a poverty kind of a thing. This is a way to make sure you had work and to make sure your family was provided for. This would happen so that a lot of households, as they would come to church, they would come and worship together with their whole household, which meant bringing their kids And it meant bringing their slaves or servants, those who worked with them. And so imagine a church setting in which this was taking place. And the slave and the master were there at the same place together with the family. And this is being read. This is how you treat your family. And so he begins to speak and he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Here's the whole focus. He's saying, you who are thought of in your culture as having very little power, very little strength, very little ability to affect change, he says, actually, you are empowered in Christ, and I don't see you differently than the master, but you are fulfilling a different role. And in this role in which you find yourself now, as the one who is indentured servitude, I want you to do it well, And with integrity, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. The whole perspective is this. Let your heart be so motivated to serve Christ that you are able to serve him in whatever context that you're in. If you find yourself to be an indentured servitude, for us, translate it to a job that you hate. Perhaps you're even working for your parents and you don't want to work for them anymore, but you're young and you're stuck You're like, man, I don't want to do this. Maybe your boss is a jerk or a dishonest person. or They've treated you poorly. He's saying, listen, you're not going to work as a response to them. You're going to work as unto the Lord. This perspective is saying, my heart is so motivated to live for Jesus. I have to do this everywhere. And he begins to talk to those who are employing. He says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And so the whole thing is perspective. He's rallying back around. Keep Christ in mind. And think of Christ as you live, as you act, as you move. Let it be the thing that compels you to live and love in your family. Let it be the thing that is redemptive and restorative in your home. Let it be the thing that pushes you to love your wife, to submit to your husband, to seek out unity or reconciliation. Let it be the thing that moves you to say, I'm sorry. Let it be the thing that says, you know what? I don't care about being right. I just want to restore what we had. I want to restore relationship because that's who Jesus is. Let it be the thing that when you go to work tomorrow, you're working in that same toxic environment that you're the one who stands out and lives differently because you have the joy of Jesus Christ in your heart and that you're working hard in a place where you know it won't get rewarded. He's saying, ultimately, I want you to keep this perspective in front of your eyes. You do not live for man. You do not live for the temporal response of human beings. You live for Jesus Christ. I think if we were to do this, if we were to live with this in mind, that we would begin to see the radical and miraculous change of God. 
think we'd see it in our home. I think we'd see it with our kids. I think we'd see it in our marriages. And I think we'd see it in our jobs. Who knows, but people wouldn't come to a saving faith in Jesus because you were willing to live out the gospel. Because you were willing to demonstrate what it is to live in alignment with Christ. Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for these here. God, we can't live out what we haven't experienced or what we don't know as we talk about this new life. Lord, if they've never known it, if they've never known what it is to be forgiven of their sins, to put the old way to death, if they've never known it, how could they live into this? And so I pray for those here today whose hearts have been pricked. They've been convicted. They've said, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. I need a Savior. And today I pray that you would meet with them. That it would not be something that is held out like a condition. If only you get your life right first. All we need to do is confess, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. That you came into this world and died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead. Jesus, I believe in you. Will you come and forgive me of my sins? Will you wash me clean? Will you make me your kid, your son, or your daughter? Jesus, I want to be yours. And so, God, we proclaim you the Lord of our life. And we say, Jesus, come have your way. Rule and reign in us. And we ask that you would help us to live differently in our families, that you would help us to love our wives, that you would help us to submit, to look for unity with our husbands, that we would be those who pursue closeness over being right. God, that you would eliminate pride and old grudges and bitterness. And instead, you would replace it with a deep and abiding love of Jesus. Lord, if you have reconciled a sinner like me to a God who is perfect, I know there's nothing you can't do. And so I ask you, God, transform my marriage. Help me with my kids. Help me live differently in my job. Lord, change me that you may be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we close and worship here, this is a good time to reflect on the state of your heart before God. Take this time to say, God, if there's anything standing between me and you, I want to deal with it. Repent of it. Confess it. Get it right. When you're ready, when you sense, man, God has forgiven me. He is good. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to come to the altar, take communion, and be reminded that you were forgiven because of the shedding of Christ's blood. You were set free not because of your good works or actions or even intent, but because you trusted in Jesus. Will you join us by responding in communion while we worship the Lord?